0: All right, we're gonna get into some deep stuff again today. What can I say? This is what you signed up for, right? So, <laughs> we're gonna talk about identity and difference at work. How about some light reading for the recommended resources, right? A uh, little Audrey Lord up in here, talking about some things using words I never thought I'd use in a business class or in a work work course work thought program. But I find what we're going to talk about today really important, really meaningful, and also really fruitful in rethinking a lot of our assumptions about work. Without further ado, let me pull up a deck for today. All right, there we go. Okay. So as I said, we're talking identity and difference at work today, and we're going to talk about it from three different angles that are going to map on top of each other. So first, we're going to talk about what it looks like to approach work sustainably and what the sustainable worker looks like. Second, we're going to talk about untapped power, and this is where we'll get into um, the uses of the erotic essay and think about what are the sources of power that we have or the resources that we have that are untapped or the ones that we're most likely to discount as we move through the world of work. And then we're going to talk about the network self and really unpacking all of the different layers of identity and selfhood that we bring to our work and looking at those as resources that we can tap into for in very valuable ways in the course of our everyday work. So as I said, all three of those pieces are going to build on each other, but they reference three different schools of thought. Yes, in 90 minutes. I know. I'm sorry. (laughs) All right. We're going to start in a pretty objective, a pretty... We're going to start at the surface, and then we're going to dive deep from there. At the beginning, I want to just start off with um, this sort of thesis, which I'm borrowing um, from a book, strangely enough, called Creating Sustainable Work Systems. But in the essay in there on being sustained by work, they talk about how a work environment that's sustainable, a team that's sustainable, a company and and an individual worker that's sustainable, there has to be an environment full of abundant and diverse resources. And they relate this to our understanding of what an ecosystem is. And I think anytime that we can bring the idea of ecology and ecosystems into how we think about anything, we're winning because it defies being reduced to any one piece of its parts or any one uh, sort of force. So they write, an ecosystem is sustainable when it's able to adapt to environmental changes, which is made possible by its biodiversity. Biodiversity has to do with the richness of diverse biological resources and also with the integration of these resources into a resilient ecosystem. By analogy, we suggest that the complexity of resources is the foundation for the functional capacity and consequent sustainability, both in organizations and employees. And so what this is really looking at is why having... Lots of different sorts of knowledge, lots of different sorts of skills, of backgrounds, perceptions, beliefs actually adds to a more sustainable environment at work. And this is one of those things where I know that all of us know this is true, right? All of us have experienced this. And yet we also know that whether it's in our own businesses or whether it's working in larger teams or with larger teams there is a tendency to reduce people and systems to very quantifiable or objective uh, kind of means. And in doing that, we actually throw a whole bunch of resources that we could be using into the closet. It's why do we do this and how can we stop doing it? So I love this idea of the the ecosystem and the biodiversity that is necessary for it to thrive. We give a lot of lip service to bringing our whole selves to work, or at least progressive on the surface, organizations will say, we want you to bring your whole self to work. But there isn't a sort of underlying philosophy of why that's important and how that not only helps the organization, but also helps the workers and the work as well. And so that's what this idea is starting to bridge to is what does this larger philosophy of encouraging a diversity of resources, of people, of ideas at work actually get us? And the author's argument here is that it's sustainability. So what does a diversity and complexity of resources at work actually look like? I'm quoting heavily from this essay because I think that for its sort of businessy jargon, it's also just really clear. And I found that I couldn't summarize it any better than what they wrote. So it is what it is. And this way you have Their words in your slide deck, too. They write When it comes to individual employees, the complexity of resources means a coherent integration of distinct personal and professional resources. The various skills, pieces of knowledge, mental models, beliefs, and other diverse resources of a sustainable employee have grown unique and valuable and are integrated into a well functioning whole, into a person and a self. A sustainable employee is thus a highly complex being with rich, integrated resources. So there's a lot going on here, and I'm going to break it down into a diagram so that it's not so like words in your face. But there's a couple of things that I want to highlight here before we move to that. One is that they're defining the goal here as a sustainable employee. So if we're looking at this as ourselves, a sustainable worker, rather than a profitable business or a growing business or a company that that shareholders are really excited about. And so I really love this idea of what does it look like to create or to provide an environment and provide a way of working in which... What we end up with is a sustainable employee. It's very in line with some of the the philosophy of uh Peter Drucker, who was just like one of the biggest, most influential voices in management in the mid-20th century. And it's very easy to put him into just like a big business kind of bucket, but a lot of his thinking is now. Like when you read it now, you're like, oh crap, that's like super progressive. That's like completely opposite of where status quo business philosophy has gone. And one of the things that he talks about is the sustainable employee. He doesn't use those that language necessarily, but he does speak to this idea of part of creating a great business, part of making your customers happy is making sure that your employees are happy as well. And that is more important than profit. And I love that. And and this is really speaking to that as well. So this idea that we have all of these different things at our disposal and a great work environment is going to help us tap into all of those different resources at our disposal so as i said promised a diagram this is i think just a really simple way of thinking about all of the resources that we have um, at hand so again it's pieces of knowledge it's various skills mental models so how we think about things right i have certain mental models you have certain mental models Based on our experience, our culture, just the way we process information, our mental models are different. And the more different mental models that a group of people can have, the more likely you are to solve a problem in a creative, sustainable, whatever your goal is way. If you only have one or two mental models, there's a good chance you're going to miss out on some really important stuff that's happening there it's also beliefs. So we could put values in that category. We could put just what we know about how the world works or what we think about how the world works. We might put in the beliefs category. And then perception. And perception, I'm thinking about here more along with the lines of what Audre Lorde talks about in Uses of the Erotic, where we all have different ways of perceiving the world, right? Right. All of us use our different senses in different ways. Our our senses are attuned in different ways. So how I perceive something is going to be different than how you perceive something. And welcoming that difference of perception is, again, a really important part of good decision-making and problem-solving and just approaching work. So these are those the five buckets of resources that we all have at our disposal that all of our teams have at our disposal but that we're very likely to forget major pieces of, right? We may only for instance rely on a certain skill set or we might only rely on a single mental model. Or we might have sort of the skills, knowledge, perception, beliefs, and mental models that we think are valuable to work. And we discount all of the other skills and knowledge and mental models that we have in our brains somewhere that could be and probably would be really valuable for work. Uh, Julie says, where would different backgrounds, cultures, ethnicities fit in? I think they fit everywhere, (laughs) but specifically beliefs for sure and perception for sure, but mental models as well. Culture is full of mental models just in terms of how we think through Our place in the world, the politics of the world, and politics here with a a lowercase p, a little p, politics, definitely beliefs. But of course, our culture and ethnicity and background can lend us certain skills and certain knowledge as well. I didn't include those as a bucket because I think that they inform all of these buckets, but it's a great question. Okay. So now we get in we get to the idea that managing work, whether it's our own work or whether it's other people's work, whether it's an individual's work or work as a team should go toward enhancing or deepening the complexity and diversity of the resources that we have available to us and at the same time, Paying attention to letting go of existing approaches for comprehending, acting, and attaching meaning to work that become outdated. The line, a sustainable organization is thus not a stable structure, I think is really key. Because when we introduce this complexity of resources, when we start tapping in to all this untapped power and these untapped resources, it's going to destabilize things, right? One of the reasons that we get so reductive about the resources that we have access to is because it keeps the stru- the structure stable, and we love stability, right? We all love st- stability. We love we love that structure that makes us feel like ah. Oh, Tomorrow's going to be just the same as today. And the day after that, and the day after that, it's all going to be the same. For as much as I think most of us love novelty, there's something about stability that's just really great. Or maybe it's just me. I really like stability. Anyhow, when we rely on that stability, when we reduce our resources and reduce diversity to maintain a stable structure, uh, we become less able to recognize external forces that are causing us to, or that are should be prompting us to make a change. We miss out on really valuable information inside of the work, inside of the team. And so by allowing for a flexible structure, for allowing us to say, I'm going to, we're going to let go of the punctuality piece on this. So we're going to let go of the black and white thinking piece on this. Let's, Bring in some gray area. Who's got some gray area for me? Right. That destabilizes the structure, but it also allows us to be more responsive to whatever's going on in the world, whatever's going on in the company, whatever's going on in your personal life. And that allows for something more sustainable, too. It's the same idea of bending versus breaking. A a reed will flex. I think that's the metaphor, right? A reed will flex, whereas something, I don't know. No, there's the rigid. A rigid structure will just break or fall over in a strong wind, whereas a flexible structure will bend in the wind. Anyhow, I've, no, that, I don't know where that came from. <laughs> so, yeah, so this, this idea of increasing complexity, um, being willing to let go of what's not working or what might have been reductive in the past, those things are um, part and parcel with allowing us to tap into additional resources. Yeah. And Julie says it takes much more time and no one ever has any time for it because of real external pressure and inside pressure. Yeah, actually. Right next to me? No, it's on the ground. The The book Beloved Economies, I, I talked about this a few podcast episodes back, but the authors there, one of their principles for running a business or running any kind of organization in a beloved economy is to trust that there's time. And of course, this is one of the hardest things to do because I'm the first person to say, I feel like time is running out constantly. I am a rush for no good reason kind of person. It's really hard for me to slow down. The author is Joanna C. and Jess Remington and maybe we can get a a link. But yeah, so this idea that trusting that there's enough time is not just saying, let's take our time. It's saying, trust that there's enough time to tap into complex and varied resources. Trust that there's enough time to share power and decision-making with other people. Trust that there's time to get to know people beyond how they show up at work. those That's the piece that, that, she, that they're talking about, trusting that there's time. And I love that. And she also, or when I spoke to Joanna about that concept, she told me that one of the things that they've noticed is that when organizations work from this idea that there is enough time to do things the way they believe they should be done, they actually go faster than organizations that are working to the clock, which is fascinating to me, anyway. Okay. So neither the worker nor the organization can thrive by neglecting categories of resources. And this is where we're going to get into the Audre Lorde essay and talk about uses of the erotic, because that's exactly what she's talking about in this essay, is that what happens when we neglect or ignore or demonize a certain category of resource. And she's talking about feeling and the Non rational knowledge that comes from our deep, deepest senses, but it applies across the board, right? It applies to all sorts of things. It's just she has this very evocative and powerful perspective on what she calls erotic power. Okay, so I'm going to read. Uh, just a, a couple of paragraphs from um, this essay in case you didn't get to it or in case you'd like a refresher. Um, and she's speaking specifically about women, the the woman's experience here. Um, but I think it's important to realize that this is something that I would associate more with what we might call the feminine rather than um, a particular gendered experience right this is the idea of these this deep feeling power is i think something that's certainly uh, structurally critical to a feminine experience of the world a woman's experience of the world or even look obviously looking more expansively toward gender there as well but it is something that that men and that the that men can tap into too. And the problem here is really looking at categorizing a type of power, categorizing a type of resource into a single expression of gender that then is Relegated out of the workplace. And that harms everyone. And it harms everyone's ability to tap into this. And also, before I read this, just in case it was not clear, when she's talking about the erotic, she's not, and she says this in the essay, right? She's not talking about sexuality per se, right? She's not talking about that concept. For her, the erotic is this deep sense feeling, this deep feeling knowledge that can be tapped into. Just wanted to make that clear as well. Again, didn't think I'd ever use the word erotic in a business context, but here we are. She writes, as women, we have come to distrust that power which rises from our deepest and non-rational knowledge. We have been warned against it all our lives by the male world, which values this depth of feeling enough to keep women around in order to exercise it in the service of men but which fears this same depth too much to examine the possibility of it within themselves. The erotic is a measure between the beginnings of our sense of self and the chaos of our strongest feelings. It's an internal sense of satisfaction to which once we have experienced it, we know we can aspire. For having experienced the fullness of this depth of feeling and recognizing its power in honor and self-respect, We can require no less of ourselves. It is never easy to demand the most from ourselves, from our lives, from our work. To encourage excellence is to go beyond the encouraged mediocrity of our society is to encourage excellence. But giving into the fear of feeling and working to capacity is a luxury only the unintentional can afford, and the unintentional are those who do not wish to guide their own destinies. This internal requirement toward excellence, which we learn from the erotic, must not be misconstrued as demanding the impossible from ourselves nor from others. Such a demand incapacitates everyone in the process. For the erotic is not a question only of what we do, It is a question of how acutely and fully we can feel in the doing. I love this essay. Lots of people do. That's not um, (laughs) unusual. But there is something in it where, for me, I think of myself as hyper-rational, hyper-literal, and I have identities that are entwined with that. And there is something within Lord's writing here that reminds me that I can be those things and I can have this other sense as well. And that the power, the perception, the sensation that is her definition of erotic power is a profoundly important piece of knowledge and a, a profoundly important piece of perception at work, in my work. It doesn't matter if what I want to do is very analytically argue for a certain position or use analysis to explain to people exactly what's going on. This is the structure that we're living in. These, This is the code that's underneath of it. Let me decode it for you. That is only made better by tapping into this power and this idea of excellence and holding ourselves to this bar of excellence without the demanding the impossible, right? but striving toward excellence, I think is... I love that. I love that. I know uh, many of you talked around achievement in your reflections, and I think that this idea of excellence might be a great way to substitute for achievement. Achievement has that external gaze that's part of it, right? I'm achieving when I'm getting the medal, I'm getting the merit badge, I'm making the list, whatever it might be. But excellence to me is internal and it requires tapping into this erotic power to to make sure that, yeah, what I'm doing is excellent or that that the direction I'm moving in is toward excellence. Did anyone have questions or was there anything that stood out to you in this essay if you were able to read it ahead of time or listen to the the video ahead of time anything that felt confusing anything that you were just like super excited about Jamie says this essay kind of blew my mind excellent i'm very glad <laughs> okay, let's keep moving. All right. So when I was thinking about the reason why I wanted to include that essay in this program is because I think it really underlines, emphasizes the importance of the diversity of resources we can tap into um and it is a incredibly powerful permission slip to look for resources that we do have access to in really unusual places <laughs> right it's not it's certainly not in MB- any mba program to ta- to tap into non-rational knowledge and that deep sense of satisfaction, that deep sense of feeling. At least I don't think it's in any MBA program. Please correct me if I'm wrong. But I think that all of us know that when we do exactly that, when we bring that sort of power into our work, when we tap into that type of resource, things go better. Um, again, from me, uh, who very much identifies as hyper-literal, hyper-rational. I also know that when I'm able to take my time and tap into what's beneath that rationality and literalness, I learn things. I discover things. I perceive different things. And that is only ever a positive, right? If I can combine that sort of yin and yang energy, then I'm going to do better work. I think we all have a different maybe makeup along these lines, uh, but we all have that ability to combine um, these different elements and to tap into these different elements on different levels. So we're going to take a pause here And do a little free write before we continue on into the network self. And so the two questions that I have for you as we take a little pause here are what kinds of resources or what kinds of power are you most likely to discount as valuable to your own work? So what are the things that you're most likely to throw in the closet to ignore to push down or silence? What kind of resources are you most likely to discount as valuable to your own work? And then as we start to bridge into the network self, how do your own differences? So your own different resources, your own different identities, your own different backgrounds, perception, add to the resources you have available. Oh good, Ash was ahead of me, making a list of these things already. So what kind of resources do you discount? And then how do your particular differences add to the resources you have available? I'm going to give you mm, about four minutes on this, and then I'm going to pull up a whiteboard to share on the first question. Actually, you know what? I'm going to pull the whiteboard up now because this... this slide is mostly up there. The only question that's not there is how do you own, how do your own differences add to the resources you have? So I'm gonna pop that in the chat. Okay, and now I'm going to stop this. And again, you are welcome, as always, to contribute to the whiteboard. You are also welcome to ignore it and just um do your own work. I'll give you about we'll do five minutes until about one eleven east East Coast time, one eleven, and then we'll move on because we have more fun drawing activities later. Okay. Now I'm not muted. <laughs> All right, So we're about at time. I'm going to leave this up for a little bit. And I'm wondering if maybe there's some discussion to be had here. Does this tell me who? No. I'm curious if the person who wrote 20 years of watching One Global Biz grow and evolve would be willing to say a little bit more about that and why that's something that you'd discount as knowledge? Rachel?
1: Oh, I'm going to say the thing. (laughs) I, I think I discount this vast amount of experience and knowledge I have because of, um, my age, just a stigma that I feel like, oh, I was old enough to work in a certain era in a certain kind of way that really has a lot to do with working like in the 90s or early 2000s. So there's some pushing away of that or stigma around just what corporate what I might make working in corporate mean, you know what Mm -hmm. I mean?
0: Yeah, the age piece is interesting to me. Would you say that there's like a a background belief or assumption that maybe that, like, having worked in those environments in the 90s, now you're quote unquote too old? to utilize that information in, in a very different workplace? Tell me more about the age piece.
1: Yeah, I think it's how much of it is still relevant. How much of it can still, I know it does, mm-hmm. but I think, and I'm I'm just making, trying to make myself vulnerable here because it's something that I want to like reclaim, right? But I think mm-hmm. it's just, maybe I'm making it mean that the external world doesn't put as much of a value on that experience. And so I'm playing Mm -hmm. it down.
0: Got it, got it. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. I was also really interested in who wrote sorting, organizing, pattern detection, what does or doesn't belong. Who wrote that if you're willing to share and I, I would be curious to hear why that's a skill that maybe you don't rely on or that you discount in your work.
1: You're, uh, you're picking on me today. Oh,
0: sorry. No. <laughs> I clearly was not paying attention. to am totally
1: teasing. I just, I'll just say that I've had jobs where that's been like part of my, when I hone in, hone that, that's the thing. Mm-hmm. But I think it can create conflict. It can point people towards things they may not want to see or hear. And I have to be super intentional. It can be something that I end up dismissing depending on the culture of the team or the relationships or whatever. Anyway, I hope that makes sense.
0: Totally makes sense. Yeah. And I think the culture piece is really interesting in that perspective because it it's one of those things where I think it illustrates how depending on the environment of the work if our varied skills or knowledge or beliefs or whatever resource we might be looking at if the perception of that is that it's not valuable then we start to question its value as well um and it makes us more judicious perhaps in in when we bring that skill to bear But that's not always there shouldn't be a problem with utilizing a a sorting, organizing pattern detection skill. That's a super valuable skill. And yeah, that whole dynamic can get a little unhelpful. Um, Anyone else want to share from something that they put down so I don't have to pick on Rachel again? I'd love to jump
2: in. Yeah, please, (laughs) Jamie. I know I'm not the only one who, in fact, I think almost everyone mentions something related to emotion or intuition. <laughs> and I was thinking about this when you were talking earlier too, especially about rational being rational. Mm-hmm. So I think mine are the two purple ones on the far left here. And these are things that I think I used to discount and don't currently. Mm-hmm. So it's something I've been thinking about, but emotions obviously are gendered. Women are emotional. Emotions are bad, like the angry black man, all that kind of stuff. And which I have a problem with all that, obviously, but the discounting of emotions, when we say I'm being rational, I'm thinking rationally, you're being emotional, but I'm being rational. Emotions and intuition and bodily feelings influence us no matter what, regardless of whether you're recognizing them. (laughs) And if you're not recognizing them and just saying, I'm being purely rational, I think you're actually being less rational because you're not recognizing the things that are influencing your thoughts and so anyways I just think that's an interesting part of this approach that's in, in work especially we're supposed to be like professional which means not emotional rational um and we're not only ignoring a whole group of things emotions intuition etc that could really help us but we're in fact damaging I think our rationality by ignoring them. Yeah I think that was something I was thinking about as you were talking before. And then for me, especially specifically, I've been talking, I've been thinking about anger a lot because mm-hmm. I'm angry a lot. And to, as a coach, you want to be like hopeful and positive and here, there's something better. And I've really struggled for a while. I think until recently with balancing that with all the anger, like I'm fairly pissed off about a lot of things that I think we were all probably pissed off about like capitalism and sexism and all the terrible things. And it's only been recently that I think I've started to embrace that as actually a, a fat, oh, why are words hard? Anyway, something that's helpful to me, an yeah, asset in my work rather than something I should discount and shove aside and not talk about. Yeah.
0: I think yeah. that you are really naming sort of the connection between this idea of diverse resources and also the power of the erotic, the connection between that and one of the other recommended readings which was the white supremacy culture characteristics information and if you yeah. haven't read it we're not going to get into it t- today beyond this i'm refiguring where i'm going to talk about it more explicitly cuz i think it's really important but one of the pieces of white supremacy culture is uh the right to comfort and essentially or typically at work that means leaving things quote unquote rational and leaving our feelings at the door so that they don't make other people uncomfortable. Anger makes people uncomfortable. Um, Sadness makes people uncomfortable. Passion makes people uncomfortable, right? And especially when we start talking about cross cultural groups or multicultural groups, the ways that we express emotion, the ways that we tap into emotion to be more rational. I love that that you've highlighted that makes people uncomfortable, right? That's why it's relegated to outside the office. But that in its own way is still is propping up this supremacy culture and the concept of whiteness. The right to comfort is just a huge piece of that. And I think feeling is a huge piece, the right the discomfort that we need to create the capacity for in ourselves and in our teams. So cool. Let's move on. I'm going to close the whiteboard, um, but I'll post that to drive as I have been. And we're going to move on to the last piece for this week before we get into questions. And that is network self-theory. I, had, I added a reading to this very late in the syllabus, but this is also included in the chapter of my book that I recommended for this week if you're following along in there. But even if you didn't read, this is pretty pretty easy concept to grasp. And I think it's one that's really fun to play with, which is why I wanted to pull it in for this week. So I'm building off of work by a philosopher named Kathleen Wallace, who is working through this theory on trying to understand what is the self. And over time, there've been various theories of self, Um, sort of the essential cognitive self I am the person who thinks, cogito ergo sum, right? And that thinking person is consistent from the moment I'm born till the moment I die. That is the self. Other theories of self have been more biological. So I am the organism that is born and will one day die. And that is myself. Uh, and uh, there's value in both of those philosophies. But what Wallace is asking us to look at is the social component of self, that self is not just who we are as individuals, but it's also who we are in relation to others. And it's through those social relations that we craft our varied identities and the the traits about us, whether they're biological or neurological or cognitive, those traits that we see as identities. We wouldn't see them as identities if it was not for the social relations that create them. And so I love this theory because it gives us a chance to really honor the multidimensional quality of who we all are. Another thing that I saw in the work that you all did over the last uh, couple of weeks on the reflection was this idea of trying to define yourself outside of work. and I, I like that this theory invites us to see ourselves both in and out of work and who we are as a whole network, rather than trying to come up with an idea of a self who happens to work. Um, And I think for for those of us who enjoy work, who enjoy what we do most of the time, um, I think that's a really valuable perspective. So this is a diagram of what she, what Wallace is asking us to start to consider that there's three big buckets of the network self. One would be biological and physiological. So things like I'm autistic, I'm left-handed, I'm five foot five. I have brown hair that I dye blonde sometimes. I am, I'm a Pennsylvanian. I'm an American. I'm on stolen land. Those kinds of real world, real DNA, real biology kinds of identities that I have. Then there's psychological and cognitive, which I could totally put. Obviously, I'm autistic in that category as well, but I'm a college graduate. I have a degree in religious studies. I, that's really important to me. Human. I'm a. I went to a small liberal arts college. That's really important to me. Those are pieces of my identity, my personality. I'm ridiculously shy and super introverted and socially awkward and have deep social anxiety that's part of my identity as well. And then I have interests, right? I have all sorts of running and hiking and crosswords, (laughs) those kinds of things. And then social, right? Specifically, who am I in relation with? I'm a wife. I'm a mom. I'm a divorcee. I'm, what else am I? I'm a daughter. I'm a sister. I'm a stepsister. I'm an aunt. Social categories. I'm white. Uh, I'm I'm a woman all of these all, all of those kinds of categories what communities I belong to right so there's all these different facets that we can use to help us think about who we are in this sort of big aggregated combination of things that make us who we are and by having that really big, multi-dimensional view of who we are, we start to recognize some of those resources that we might be discounting, some of those resources that we don't tap into on a regular basis at work. And so I think this is a really fun exercise to do as a person, right? But I think it's also a really fun exercise to do with clients or with team members as well, especially when you're noticing that someone is approaching their work in a sort of reduced or flat way, right? When you know someone has interests or identities that they're not bringing into their work, which is not to say, and I don't believe that we do need to actually bring our whole selves to work. I believe that there are identities that we're perfectly within our rights to say, I don't bring this identity to work. I don't bring this particular social relation to work. I don't bring this particular skill set to work because I don't want it there. But when there might be things in in our network self that we forget about at work that would actually be really helpful and could actually help us um, either do what we do or relate to others who are helping us do what we do. So again, I think this is a really fun thing to do for yourself, but I also think it's a really fun exercise um, that you could use with your clients as well. And I have a. There's a worksheet in the Google Drive folder that you are. You're all of the worksheets. You're welcome to use with clients or team members for sure. It's very simple, but it at least would get you started either with yourself or with someone else in terms of mapping your network self. Yeah, I went over that already. I'm going to give you five minutes to go ahead and map your network self. Get out a sheet of paper open up a whiteboard somewhere. This is not something we're going to do collectively because I don't even know how we would do that. Uh, But this is a great opportunity to just use these different categories and maybe categories that I don't even have on here. This is a very limited look at this to just map out who you are in all sorts of different ways. And then we'll come back and maybe unpack that a little bit and do questions. And then I will send you on your way. So five minutes, we'll go to, to one thirty-five, and then we'll wrap it up from there.
3: Okay. There's
0: 135. As you look over what you just mapped out, what kind of resources or sources of power do you have available for you at work that maybe you don't think to tap into on a regular basis? As you look over those different identities, is there a particular identity that you can say, that might give me a a leg up on this project, or it might help help me think about this or that? Does anyone want to share if they noticed a particular component of their network self that they might be able to bring into their work more to allow for a greater diversity and complexity of resources?
4: No, I can just Any- offer one thing. Yeah. Part of how I think about it for me is I'm first generation American. So mm-hmm. a lot of what I've had to learn how to do. Hi, my dog would like to be part of this conversation. when you want to say hi. Excellent. Okay. okay. is Is there's a lot of code switching in my life when there always has been between Middle Eastern household and being wanting to be American, especially as a child. And so I think it does allow me like that code switching. I see it show up when I work with very technical people, even though I'm not particularly technical, like it's just that Like that interest and capacity to put myself into or to try to put myself in someone else's shoes and see things differently, even though it's not like my language, literally sometimes or otherwise, but it's just like a skill I had to develop as a child. And I think it serves me as an adult. Absolutely. Yeah. I think
0: I experienced that in a different way with recognizing the now knowing that I'm autistic, recognizing how that's influenced me. And how that's developed different skill sets over the years. And obviously it is not at all the same thing, but there's a lot of connections there in terms of the code switching, masking, under decoding what other people do. That's the big thing for me.
4: Yeah. I I parent a daughter who's neurodivergent. And Mm. so I'm code switching in that way also for her, translating for her the rest of the world to her sometimes and her to the rest of the world other times. So there's, yep. yeah, that, that I hadn't, that hadn't occurred to me until you said it, but yeah, for sure. Yeah.
3: Yeah.
0: Anyone else notice anything from the, the network self piece that they want to share? Mira, I was just going to mention
1: on a personal note, I moved from a very dense populated geography, urban area of Washington, DC to much more rural area and like coming into this new culture. I see a lot of things that people who've lived here all their life or have very deep connections, like generations of families have lived here, take for granted or don't see, although they create deep meaning and connection. Mm -hmm. And I've been trying to remind myself that identity that I have of someone that's not from here. Is can be really just a very positive attribute, something bringing to light what people experience, but it may, may not word or may not openly value, but they're it's inherently a part of the culture.
0: Yeah, that makes sense, but. it does make sense. It also makes me think too about how this whole this theory, this idea of the network self, can remind us that other people have identities and um, perception and and Mm. beliefs that are not familiar to us, but are deeply important and powerful to them. And that those are things that when we're thinking about the ways that we're connecting and communicating with someone, keeping that stuff in mind and making space for it, I think is really important too, because I think you're example of the outsider coming into the small town. There's a certain narrative that we have about that, right? Where the outsider from the big city knows how things should be done in the country, right? <laughs> Which is, I don't hear you saying that. I'm just picking that up from popular culture. But it, it's in those that story that it's like the outsider does have something really valuable to bring to a new community and... How do you maintain space and honor the deep tradition and the deep identities that people who have been there for generations also have, right? And I think reminding ourselves that these varied identities, these varied resources are valuable or as valuable as the resources that we have, I think is a really important Mm -hmm. piece of working with others too.
1: Yeah, I really like that. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. All
0: right. I'm going to stop the screen share. So we've got some time. What questions do you have from this week? Or from anything that we've covered thus far? Questions, reflections, things you're feeling confused about or things you're excited about. All fair game.
5: I've definitely been, I'm like looking at you guys up on my screen, my TV screen, because I just feel cool. comfy. But... One of the things that I've realized through this discussion today is that I really hide the fact that I haven't gone to a university and have that like degree behind me inside of my marketing. And through this like networking of the personality or the personal self, I'm seeing a lot of other elements that kind of add to that as maybe a benefit. Didn't stay in one school longer than two years. I'm pretty socially dynamic. I've also done a lot of courses like this that I feel like have really stretched and strengthened my worldview, but I'm still feeling like the, woe, what to hide or like what to turn down in my business based on like external perspective. Mm-hmm. Anyways, it's like the messy middle that I'm in. I don't know that there's a, a question in there more than, yeah just like feeling that's pretty alive.
0: Yeah. I think that's a great reflection. I think it's a great reflection on how outside narratives can make us feel shame about things there's absolutely no shame in. I think it's also an interesting reflection on how I mentioned the whole, I don't buy the idea that you have to bring your whole self to work or that we should be requiring, as if you could do that, people to bring their whole selves to work. And I think it's the same thing in personal branding as well. I don't think that every difference that we have is necessarily something that we need to reveal on our about pages, (laughs) right? Not everything that's different about us needs to be a headline or needs to be a selling point, but that also doesn't mean that there isn't power in it or that it is potentially a focal point of shame, as I was saying too. And I think that there's a, there's some place where we're figuring out what's useful at work what we want to communicate at work, and what we want to work with personally so that we aren't discounting ourselves in other ways. Does that make sense?
5: Yeah, for sure. And I'm curious too about your personal thoughts around it. I think it was on a podcast months ago where you were sharing that you were thinking about Maybe getting a doctorate because X, Y, and Z professional, blah, blah, blah. So yeah, I'm curious about that that as well. But if you want to share.
0: Yeah, I'm happy to share. I think it's something that... So I have an undergraduate degree, but I always feel shame about not having a graduate degree and there's a lot of layers to that right there's the kind of work that i do the kind of work i want to do the kinds of network that i want to have there's the merit badge component of it having the title having the piece of paper there's the there's a perception sometimes that people assume i am more educated than i am that causes me discomfort and Yeah. It's just, it's a weird, it's a weird thing. I think ultimately I decided that this is again, not the time to make graduate school happen or try to make it happen, but it's something that like when I think about going back to school, I get really emotional About it. And I think that there's a lot of layers to that. Some are very positive and some are very negative. I will tell you, though, that I got fan mail from literally the subject line said fan mail from an English professor at Princeton last week who just happens to be married to one of my favorite novelists. And that made my life. So I haven't told anybody else other than my husband, but now you all know. So thank you.
4: Can I offer I think I'm dying to know who the novelist is? Who's your favorite novelist? It Lev Grossman. Okay. Not my favoriteist, but one of my oh, favorite. One of. Okay. Enough. So I wanted to know if it's okay, Ash. I wanted to offer a point of view from the other end of the spectrum, which is I often say I'm overeducated. Partially I spent 20 years working in academia, one of the things we do is you just have to keep collecting master's degrees and doctorates because it's part of your compensation package, if I'm honest. I also, like I said, first generation American. And what's the moment when we go back into like all the layers, Tara, you grow up in a Middle Eastern engineering household, and you didn't turn out to be a medical doctor, you better have something to show for our sacrifice. So part of it is just the merit badges, right? That's what being good at something looks like. But when we were talking earlier about the other ways, and I'm going to forget the language we were using, Terry, even though it happened like an hour ago, but the other ways of knowing, which is some of the commentary that I was writing about and I saw other people write about, it's like, what I often think is that intuition was beat out of me through learning research methods, right? Being overeducated, one of the reasons I look at it and say, it's done great things for me. I and mean, I learned a lot. I met great people. I'm proud of the work I've accomplished. And I had to unlearn so much about trusting other ways of knowing because what does the data say? What does the data say? What does the data say? Is another form of saying there's only one way to know. There's only one way to decide. There's only one way to support. Right. And I was thinking about Jamie's comment, like so much of what we do in coaching is listening, not only to our intuition, but helping our clients hear theirs. And that's all Really not valued in the academy. What I might offer is that there maybe the next frontier after we dismantle work is to dismantle education and higher education. I think it's probably time. But I think there's probably a lot of muscles you've developed that I might have a lot of initials after my name, but I have a lot of more reps to do in the gym to get those as strong as yours might be. I'm guessing here, but I'm telling you, I know that I have to do a lot of unlearning still. And I'm 10 years out of academia, but it's gonna take a lifetime to unlearn that shit.
5: Yeah. Thanks for sharing that perspective. It's funny, just like hearing you talk. I like, like the backs of my eyes filled up with water. Just, it's such an emotional space.
4: Yeah, I that the back of my eyes filled up with water. Wow.
0: I just finished Naomi Klein's latest book, Doppelganger. And she t- mentions here and there throughout that she does not have a college degree. And yet she's taught at colleges. <laughs> yeah. And when I read that, I started to feel a lot better about what I could still do with my life at 40, for 41 now. And because the rigor of her, there's so much rigor in her work. And rigor is a word that I love. You've probably heard me wax poetic on it before, but like the idea, the way I think that Lord is using excellence, I use the word. Rigor. I don't need something to, I don't need my work to check off a whole bunch of boxes, but I need to feel like it's as thorough as I could make it at this time with the resources that I have, that I've approached this in full integrity with what excellence or rigor means to me. And I, her work is just so much that, that is. Really inspiring. And then also to be like, yeah, you know what? That's good enough. <laughs> and that, that there is a path forward where rigor or excellence is the credibility itself, right? Because what are we talking about when we talk about education? We're talking about credibility and who are we trying to be credible to? And I think that there are a lot of people out there who maybe do discount not having the letters after the name or letters before the name or all the pieces of paper on the wall, right? There's a lot of those people out there, but there's also a lot of people who take rigor and excellence as its own credibility. And I think that's something that we can all pay attention to both for ourselves, but for anyone that we're working with as well.
3: You know what it reminds, it just popped into my head for what it's worth. There's all this There's more writing now on this concept of the second half of life. And I'm not remembering, there's a particular guy who wrote a book about it. I heard interviewed on a podcast and it's the idea that in the second half, call it forties and on that we're in a place of synthesizing and pulling together of wisdom versus gaining intellectual facts. Not that we can't keep learning, but that there's actually a shift as one's had a lot of life experience in different areas that we start get to start connecting the dots and synthesizing and that our brains are actually built for that as we get older as opposed to coming up with the next new technological advancement and that's like a natural progression that we also don't own and in the workplace it shows up as 50 and 60 year olds competing with 30 year olds and thinking it's oh these old fuddy duddies don't get it anymore we gotta hire all these new people but there's like this depth of wisdom that elders bring or people that have been around for a while. And then there's this other kind of smarts that young people bring in that they're both needed, but like, it's not honored. It's not in its brain. And there's like brain chemistry involved with this too, which I think is just really interesting.
0: Yeah. I think that's an interesting thing to think about too, looking at the network self idea, because if I were to take, if I were to ask my kid, at 15 to map out her network self versus my network self, I have a lot more nodes in my network uh, versus her simply for the fact that I've lived longer and I've done more things than she's done. Uh, And it's not that she doesn't have a rich, complex concept of self. She absolutely does, but it'll be richer and more complex by the time she's 40. And so I think it's interesting to think about sort of the progress like the visual progression that you might be able to see thinking through that. Yeah. I the what you're talking about, I know this wasn't the book that you were mentioning, but it, it made me think of the researcher that I had on the podcast in August named Maro Guyenne, and his book, The Perennials, and he's talking about how we're moving into a post-generational society and that thinking about our lives instead of in childhood, young adulthood retirement, instead of seeing it in that sort of life stage thing that we need to be thinking in like 10 to 15 year segments. And what can you do with the next 10 to 15 years? Or what do you want to do with the next 10 to 15 years? And recognizing that we're going to have three, four, five of those in our peak work experience and in our peak life, when we're operating at full functionality, right? Most of us are going to have a lot of those segments that we can play with. And I found that super, super liberating from my perspective. Hi, Tara. I just,
1: I wanted to just comment, Ash, When you use the term messy middle, and I know that can apply to a lot of different things, but the thing that just struck me is just like, we all have that messy middle that's somewhere in this networked identity. And there's so much power in that messiness that will resonate with the right people. And anyway, I don't mean this to be as much of a pep talk as just like affirming what you're saying and that I think we all have that and we can often steer away for all the things that we're talking about around the pressures and the external perspective or what we think people value. But anyway, I just, I think there's so much, when you were talking about it, I was like, oh my God, that is so rich. There's so much. And we didn't get to hear your full story, but I just, I want to just encourage all of us to what's that messiness or the thing that's hard to put on the chart. It's hard to map out. And how can we get more clarity around that? Anyway, that feels important to me. Thank you.
0: I love that too, in that it prompts me to think back on like the sort of the cognitive, con- cognitively consistent self idea. Like I am who I am as a think, like I think therefore I am from the moment I'm born to the moment I die. And that's me. That is the self. And I think that is so limited in that it avoids any kind of messy middle because there's this idea that if I haven't found who that is, if I haven't named that person, if I haven't described the self, um in that sort of very linear very narrow conception of self then somehow i'm failing whereas the network self invites as you said rachel the the messy middle and it also acknowledges that there are going to be a lot of contradictions <laughs> in our self right that it is not consistent that there isn't necessarily some sort of grand meta-narrative over our idea of self. But instead, there's a lot of shit going on in there. (laughs) And and there's a lot to be learned in contradictions. Contradictions are fertile ground for all sorts of insight and perception, and they're really powerful. Any other questions before we wrap up for this week? We're going to keep talking about difference and identity for the next couple of weeks. This this segment that we're in, and we'll look at it from a few other different angles. But yeah, hopefully this was a helpful dive into thinking about the different resources you have available to you, the different identities, the the multidimensional selves that we all have um, and how that can be valuable at work. Um, And uh, I look forward to next week and diving in deeper. Thank you all.